My name is Kurt Buchanan. I'm a part of the staff team here at uh, Hillcrest, and uh, I'm so glad to be here with you um, this morning. We've been going through, just started last week, a series on Galatians, which we've been calling Jesus Plus Nothing. At the center of the book of Galatians, Galatians is a letter written by Paul the Apostle, one of the early church leaders. He wrote it, a letter to these people in Galatia, kind of the churches of Galatia, not one specific church, but many, because there was kind of this epidemic that was happening. There was a controversy about the nature of the gospel. The gospel that God created the world and everything in it, us in his image, that humankind sinned and is sinful, that Jesus Christ came to rescue us by living the life that we should have lived, by dying the death that we should have died, so that we can enter an eternal relationship with God that begins now and goes on into eternity, beyond all circumstances, even death, into endless joy, peace, and love. The controversy was about Jewish cultural traditions. They were being imposed on non-Jewish Christians as necessary for salvation. But we've been saying, because we believe Paul was saying, that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Now, um, if there were any preschoolers, you can go out now. If there are anybody out there, anyone taking sermon notes in the sermon notes contests, boys and girls, I think often you compete against one another. Um, here it is all wrapped up neatly for you, the book of Galatians, in a few words. Believe, saved, obey. And it is not believe and obey saved. You see the difference? See, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, which Pastor Steve was preaching through last week, that you can have something, call it the gospel, but that it is no gospel at all. Even though it sounds very similar, if we reverse the word uh, often at times in uh, the Bible is pervert, which is just a word that means to turn inside out or to reverse. If you reverse the gospel, if you revise the gospel, if you add to it, if you subtract from it, we create something that is equally devastating as being lost in our sin with no gospel at all. So here is an example of how it can be reversed. Again, rather than simple words, here's a sentence. Jesus comes to rescue. We, by faith in him, receive his salvation and are accepted by God and live a life that honors him. The second option. Jesus comes to rescue us. We, by faith in him and a life that honors him, receive his salvation and are accepted by God. Do you see the difference? If this was a multiple choice test, some of you hate those, how many of you might be fooled? And, and B, that sounds close. That's pretty much it, isn't it? But the second one is no gospel at all. See, adding a life that honors God to the necessary requirements for salvation is the problem. 
And that's why Galatians actually among all of the letters that Paul wrote, even though sometimes he can be quite harsh in any one of his letters, in this one he seems far more so because something is being threatened. The gospel is being threatened. If, in fact, you do this, you add a life that honors God to um, faith in Jesus for salvation, it means that Jesus' death on the cross is only able to partially save you. And that through your own effort, you must make up the difference through your own self-righteousness. But you see, you don't pay what you can and ask Jesus for a top-up in your debt. See, most religions actually function this way. It is about the life that you live, and then salvation is dependent on you. Even other versions of Christian thought that are really no gospel at all, again, do this. And that's why Paul was so upset. But Christianity is entirely different from any other religion or philosophy out there because Christians repent of their sin, but also of their self-righteousness. Not that we don't try to live lives that honor God, to live righteously, but that our righteousness is always tainted by sin. In fact, we need another righteousness beyond our own. We're studying in Galatians, but here's Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 22. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that everyone, every mouth may be silenced. Every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You see, God's righteousness is given to us through faith. It's not that ours is just kind of amped up to the necessary level. It is God's righteousness that is given. So the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. No effort, no tradition or ceremony, no self-righteousness can add to the work of Jesus. So in order to set the Galatians straight on the true gospel, Paul must show the reliability of his message. So he begins with how he first experienced the gospel, the nature of his ministry to the Gentiles, his apostolic role, and his relationship to other apostles and the gospel they were preaching. So let's go into our text uh, for today. Again, you can find this in the Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, that's our gift to you. But we're looking at Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 through to chapter 2, verse 10, somewhere around there. 
Let's uh, read it together, uh, or not together. You, I'll read, I'll be the one voice, and you can murmur in your heads if you'd like to. Sometimes when I hear a whole crowd reading, though I know that's a Christian tradition, it overwhelms my ears, and uh, I start thinking about the harmonies between the different voices and trying to arrange um, parts. Okay, here we go. Verse 11, chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Just a moment there. Other people have claimed to have revelations from Jesus Christ, but their gospel does not line up with this gospel, with the other apostles, gospels, etc., which we will get into. But just a note to say, just because you think you had a revelation from Jesus doesn't mean you have the gospel or a new gospel. Just a moment of pause there. Okay, verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how, I intense, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was very extremely and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria, Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report that a man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. As they praised God, and they praised God because of me. This is into chapter two now. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ, Christ Jesus, and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter or Cephas, it's the same person, had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles 
and they to the circumcised. All they asked is that we would continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Okay, if anyone out there is taking sermon notes for the sermon notes competition, you can read all about Paul's conversion to Christianity where he first met Jesus in Acts chapter 9. Acts is another part of the New Testament you can go to. In Acts chapter 9, you can read about this in other detail. Now, when you look at the two timelines between these two accounts, when you read Acts, it sounds like it happens all in a matter of days or weeks, but here we get more detail and we actually begin to expand the timeline from Paul's conversion to this meeting here and it's probably 20 years or more, 25 years maybe, depending on kind of how you um, add up the details. But it's a much longer time. Remember that when you're reading the Bible, it's kind of like the Marvel Universe. Everything has a prequel or a sequel, and there's important parts about the Avenger story that you have to see in Guardians of the Galaxy first. Some of you might not have any idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. Also, in the Bible, there are superheroes and villains, an evil character who is intent on world domination, and a savior and his team with special powers who are certain of victory. The costumes are optional. So what is the main point of this section of the Bible. The gospel that Paul is preaching and the gospel that the other apostles were preaching was all exactly the same. Even though it came by revelation to Paul in a different way than the other apostles who spent, again, three years with Jesus being discipled by him, walking around with him that we get to see in the gospels, there are elements of Paul's story that we don't know, but it's, he's likely spent these same kind of three years when he went into Arabia, that he spent time um, with Jesus learning, meditating on all of these things, allowing all of the scripture that he knew so well to be shaped in light of the gospel. But even though, again, this was 20, 25 years later, even though it had been preached in different cultures, in different places over that whole time period, even though these people didn't really connect and meet up, they couldn't just kind of text one another around the globe. Even though all of that distance was between these two gospels being preached, they were the same. There was no alterations, no revisions, no additions, no subtractions. The gospel that came to the Galatians was pure, exact, and true. Jesus plus nothing. In fact, almost the whole New Testament is written by the men who meet up in Galatians 2 to decide what they're going to do with Paul's message. They decide they're not going to add anything to Paul's message. So Paul wrote half the New Testament. Peter, he wrote epistles. Um, the Gospel of Mark is actually, Mark was a disciple of Peter, so the Gospel of Mark is actually kind of a Peter vision of, of Jesus. Um, then you have John, his gospel epistles and revelation. The only things that are missing are the book of Hebrews and Matthew for the whole New Testament. These gentlemen who decide we've got it right. 
The only thing, again, Hebrews, Matthew, and the book of Jude. Now, Jude has been the cause of controversy, but not because it is different, because it is so much the same as Peter's writing, that people go, was it Jude or Peter? We don't know. Why is it called Jude? That's the question. The question isn't, he presents a different gospel. It's all the same. Why is that important for us to know? Because the gospel, as it is preached across the whole New Testament, even all of its foreshadowing that takes place across all of the Old Testament is in alignment. It is true. All that is necessary is there. It has been preserved throughout history for us. The New Testament, the whole Bible is here for you. You can saturate your soul in its truth and power. It is still potent and powerful. Nothing has um, decreased or been minimized in time as it's traveled from culture to culture. It is still the power of God. Okay, back to Galatians. So Paul, now confirmed to be in alignment with the other apostles, that the gospel he preaches is the one true gospel, writes the Galatians and tries to set them straight. Something has gotten them off course. It was a group of spies. Galatians 2 verse 4, this matter about the nature of the gospel arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Okay, did you notice that kind of language? Infiltrated our ranks, spy on the freedom, make us slaves. Espionage, right? One of the things I love about spy movies is the twists and turns. No, the ones who seem to be heroes might actually be the enemy. It's always someone closer than we think that turns out to have the evil master plan. The one who has been turned for one reason or another to the other side. Most times, they believe in their evil master plan. They just can't see that it's actually evil. Modern spy movies do a great job at showing how confusing it is to be the double agent. Lines of belief and behavior are crossed all the time, and the mission itself becomes unclear. It's very likely that even in a great church like Hillcrest, we have people in our ranks at any level of leadership or ministry that might be spies. You might be a greeter or a children's volunteer. You might be an elder or a worship leader. You might be a pastor. It's very likely that we have a mole in our midst. There are double agents among us. It could be any one of us. Now, I don't know how conscious these false believers were about their infiltration, about the spying that they were doing about their intentions to make people slaves. Their motives might have been different, but that's what they were doing. We have often said, and will likely keep saying, that Jesus is the only master who doesn't enslave. Again, idols are the things that begin to enslave us. So there was an idol in play, 
They were bringing along some kind of idol and placing it somehow above Jesus. Now, the Galatians were uh, a pagan people. They didn't know anything about Jewish culture, right? They came from all kinds of different backgrounds and cultures. Um, when Paul preached the gospel, he preached the gospel to them in, their, in its fullness, but he didn't demand that they follow Jewish traditions and become culturally Jewish. But a group came after Paul was there and started the church, and he had moved on. They came in after, and they said, yes, believing in Jesus is great. Just like Paul said, we also agree with that. But there's a couple of things he missed. And they began to preach about becoming culturally Jewish, entering the same kind of customs, ceremonies, traditions that the Jews had. Circumcision is the one thing that's kind of mentioned here, but it's not really just that. That became a way of identifying all of the different ways that um, Jews would become kind of ceremonial, uh, ceremonially clean and other things, the traditions that they had. Um, there was a great number of things that were kind of all bundled um, together. And they all kind of had to do with how they were supposed to properly approach God. These things are all laid out for us in the Old Testament. We can read about them there, how they were established. But the point of why many of these things came into existence was because of the hardness of people's hearts. God gave them a law with a purpose. He was showing them how incapable they were of keeping it how great their need was for a savior. And even after keeping all of the cleanliness laws that this group of people were so concerned that now the Galatians also kept, even after they did this as in Jewish customs, there was still always a need for a blood sacrifice before they could really kind of enter into worship. It was always pointing to the fact that there needed to be a savior, that Jesus needed to be the once and for all sacrifice. Jesus came to fulfill the law, and that's why we dishonor it, or this group even would dishonor the law, the thing that they were trying to put above Jesus, or right up to next to Jesus to say, these two things, and then you get saved. When they elevated it to a point that it shouldn't have been, they dishonor it, because it was pointing to Jesus. Now, maybe you don't know anything about Old Testament um, law, Hebrew traditions or anything like that. Maybe, again, maybe you're just checking out Christianity. This is all new to you. If we were to say, at the beginning of your life, someone pressed record on the things that you said, not even all the things that you say up here, but just the things that you said about other people and how they should live or what they should do, if when you got to heaven... Um, we just, you know, every time that you said this is what somebody should do, a law was created. You would be guilty and charged by the own, your own law. Even if you know nothing of God's law, you would be guilty of all the things that you've said. This is what people should be like. This is what they should do. This is what they should say. This is, they shouldn't say this. If none of us here would even pass our own law, you can't keep your own law or God's law. But this group of spies could not wrap their heads around the fact that all the saving was up to Jesus, that it was Jesus plus nothing. Perhaps they wanted to gain leverage over God to say, well, I've done this and this and this and this for you, so when I ask my boss for the week off, 
he had better give it to me, and if he doesn't, it's your fault. Or maybe it's a bigger kind of point of leverage that you wish you had. I've done this and this and this and this for you, which means I shouldn't be sick. Um, perhaps um, they felt a weight of guilt. They felt like they still needed to pay for their sin, even though Jesus had paid for all of their sin. They still felt like they needed to pay for it. They were living in that guilt. They were holding on to that. You know, um, maybe you have been there. Maybe you've done something you shouldn't have. You've sinned. And rather than running to God and asking for his forgiveness and receiving his grace, you mope around and you beat yourself up for days or weeks or months or years. Don't you see it's the same thing? You're somehow adding to the gospel that you also are paying for something. Perhaps they just couldn't handle their cultural identity being threatened because now they had attached their cultural identity to what it was to be a follower of Jesus and to be saved. So they've added their cultural identity to salvation. And so to see other people coming to salvation but not adding their cultural identity, they felt like, well, now, because we've attached our cultural identity to salvation, we're going to you know, lose our identity. It's being tainted somehow. Maybe they just liked it the way that it was. Uh, a few years ago, I had the chance to take a class about world missions. And as a part of this class, there was an experience where we went into um, uh, a gathering, a church gathering, as it very likely would have been done in another culture. None of the kind of Christian norms as they exist in Canada for the way that we gather, the way that we worship, the way that we do all of those things um, really were present. It was very different, very foreign to me. There weren't you know, benches and seating. There wasn't uh, a band or um, pop cultural references to Avengers movies um, or humorous personal stories. Again, it was very different. It was unnerving almost because again, I'm from a certain cultural tradition. It was unnerving. This is what we need to keep in mind when talking about cultural identity or a national identity. See, the Galatians didn't need to become Jewish to become Christians, but it didn't mean that Jews needed to be less Jewish. When someone embraces the gospel truth in their lives, they become more of what they are, not less. They become more of who they're meant to be. See, the gospel has the power to redeem culture. A Jewish believer who understood that their Jewishness was cultural and not a means by which they could find acceptance with God could be fully Christian and for the first time, fully Jewish. Finally, all of their elements of their culture and tradition could be aligned in the gospel. The culture itself would be more of what it should be. Do you see what I mean? When we reverse things, it will be always become an enslaving idol. If we put our sense of identity in any culture or subculture before the kingdom of Jesus, the culture, its beauty and celebrations, uniqueness, they become less. But when we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
the aspects of our culture can become more beautiful. In the kingdom, by his power, we can really become what a Canadian should be. And more than that, the gospel wasn't just to go to nations as we understand them, it's to go to all of the, you know, kind of with you know, borders in the way that we've kind of defined a country. We use the word nation to talk about that, but the word nation, is almost when it shows up in the New Testament, it always is talking about the subcultures, all of the little different groups of people. Notice how we use the word community differently now than if you back that 50 years. When people talked about community, they would talk about the spot, the actual place, that region, that's a community. But now we have all these other cross-sections where we talk about community, you know. I recently, I, <coughs> in the last few years, got into traditional archery. And in my research through the internet, I found there is a whole online community of instinctive archery shooters. Again, they're not in one spot, but community is spread out all over the place because of different unifying factors. And the word nation, we're supposed to go into all the nations, that's more of what we're actually meaning. That it's supposed to not just be Canadian if it's you know, on your birth certificate or if you have that status, if you have a piece of paper that says you are Canadian. That's not really what it's talking about in terms of really being a Canadian. It's talking about being a, a Canadian who, you know, and then all of the other different ways that you connect, all of the other different communities that you have. See, it's not just supposed to go to what is typical of a Canadian, but to all Canadians. The gospel is supposed to go to people who drink Tim Hortons and Starbucks. I hope he didn't have that. Today, though, that would have been disrespectful because it's Canada Day. Canada, more than any other nation I can think of, celebrates diversity in culture. And in many ways, that's a recipe for total chaos. But if the gospel takes root in the heart of Canadians, we have the potential to demonstrate the beauty of the kingdom in unimaginable ways. Where are, all of, where are you in all of this? Again, we all have different faith journeys. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're a Christian, but only recently. Maybe you are here today and you have never heard the gospel that Paul and the other apostles were preaching. Maybe you were hearing for the first time that it's Jesus plus nothing. That it is by faith alone that you are saved. And that the life you live needs to flow out of that reality. That your obedience to Jesus' teaching is a response to his grace. Not something you can use to pay your debt of sin. That he loved you when you were far from him. That you can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today and be certain of your salvation. Receive his Holy Spirit and begin to live a life of gratitude and worship rather than a life under the crushing weight of your own failing self-righteousness. Maybe you have heard a gospel that is no gospel at all. Maybe some of you have been living your life according to a different gospel, one that has been revised to fit our culture, one that has been altered to accommodate popular opinion or your own personal feelings. Maybe it's a gospel that has been added to, like the gospel of the false believers were preaching to the Galatians with rules or traditions that must be followed 
in order to receive salvation. Perhaps you are a victim of the false believer's false gospel, but maybe you are the false believer. Does that make you nervous? Okay, in our age of being very politically correct, that just made you nervous, some of you, right? Um, There's a brilliance to comedian Jeff Foxworthy's You Might Be a Redneck comedy. Do you know what I'm talking about? Any of you out there? Yeah, okay. So again, he never says, if you do this, you are a redneck. He just says you might be. So it's your choice to opt in or opt out of whether or not you are. For example, here's a few. If you ever cut your, ga- if you ever cut your grass and found a car, you might be a redneck. <laughs> if the taillight covers on your car are made of red tape, you might be a redneck. If you own a home, or if you, hey, if you own a home that is mobile, and five cars that are not, you might be a redneck. <laughs> if your boat has not left the driveway in 15 years, you might be a redneck. If you've ever hit a deer with your car deliberately, you might be a redneck. <laughs> if you've ever been kicked out of the zoo for heckling the monkeys, you might be a redneck. If people hear your car coming before they can see it, you might be a redneck. Okay, so you get the picture. So. As a way of coming to an end for this morning, we're going to do a bit of analysis. First, this is the check. Again, you opt in. I'm not saying that you are. You opt in. Two different categories. The first one, you might be a spy. If you are looking at someone else's behavior and wondering what the rules are for you, you might be a spy. If you're a parent trying to get a child to behave before they believe or shaming them for their sins, you might be a spy. If you've ever tried to give a new believer a makeover, you might be a spy. If you've ever tried to give a new believer a list of acceptable and unacceptable words, you might be a spy. If you try to pay for your own sin by moping around and feeling guilty and beating yourself up, you might be a spy. If difficult circumstances have given you doubts about Christianity, you might be a spy. If your cultural expectations and experience are indistinguishable from your faith, or if the traditions are enough for you, you might be a spy. Okay, you might be a Christian. Again, you get to opt in. If you don't just have rules, you do what you do because you have a relationship with Jesus, you might be a Christian. If your behavior is rooted in belief in the truth of the gospel, you might be a Christian. If you preach your gospel, the gospel to your kids to see changes in their life, you might be a Christian. If you know that transformation always begins in the heart, you might be a Christian. If the gospel is the only thing that you prescribe for trans, for a tra- to transform a hard heart, you might be a Christian. If you are gripped with the gospel, like it took hold of Paul and everything else seems dim by comparison, you might be a Christian. 
If you run to God the moment you've sinned, you might be a Christian. If you are content, no matter what the circumstances in your life, you might be a Christian. If your faith goes into all aspects of experiencing culture, but it goes beyond your culture and experience and redeems all cultures, you might be a Christian. So where are you? Are you just hearing the gospel for the first time? Then this is your moment. This is your chance. The Christians in this room are longing to see you make that decision. The angels in heaven are ready to drop the balloons from the ceiling in the throne room, to light the fireworks, to do loop-de-loops, to dance and sing. Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, but the handle is on the inside, and you have to open it. Make that decision today. Your life will be transformed from meaninglessness to purpose, from emptiness to overflowing, from chaos to order, from aimless wandering to a destiny. Come and pray with someone at the end of the service and let them know that you'd like to make a decision for Christ. Maybe you've been stuck in a gospel that is no gospel at all. You've added or subtracted or revised or reversed the gospel. Would you come back to the gospel that is Jesus plus nothing? Believe in the Lord Jesus and experience his saving, that he's brought salvation from your sin. That he wants to see you set free in every aspect of your life through the power of the gospel. And then begin to live a life that honors him, grateful for what he has done. Christians, don't give in for a moment. Galatians chapter two, verse five, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Preserve the gospel. Rehearse it in your mind daily. Proclaim it boldly. As we're going to see uh, next week in the very few verses that follow, Peter, who was a part of this whole meeting, all of this thinking, begins to slip back. Paul has to confront him so that he comes back into alignment with the gospel. He was slipping into his national identity or comfort in his own familiar culture. It takes a certain kind of tenacity, a ruthlessness, but don't give in for a moment. Now this morning we're gonna celebrate communion together and I'll invite the worship team to come uh, back now. Christian history and thought, practice, it can get complicated. It's easy to get lost if you aren't daily anchored in the simple truth of the gospel. That's why the communion table is so significant for us. A chance to remember, to consider Jesus, his life and teaching, his death and resurrection. The life abundant he offers to each of us and the part we get to play in seeing his kingdom unfold here and now. And then the joy of an eternity in the fullness of who he is. Singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being.
Uh, we're going to receive communion again here in just a moment. The band is going to uh, play through. We'll sing a song as we do. We'll invite you to come forward and receive the elements that are here, and then you can go back to kind of where you've been seated. I'll invite the guest services team to kind of come and help us uh, do that. And then once uh, you return to your seat, um, you can, uh, we'll kind of all participate together in taking the elements. A couple of announcements before we go there. Um, Wednesdays throughout the summer, again, there's details in your bulletin about this. We're going to take uh, time to pray for youth, young people, children, um, significant challenges facing um, many of our young people and certainly in our nation. And if you want to be a part of praying and doing that, um, please make sure that you mark those details down and join us for prayer. Also, just want to say Joe's Place, again, um, has had an incredible uh, ministry to many of our youth in this uh, part of our world. And uh, one of the things that they do is they take um, students to camp and uh, Kettleston Camp and a variety of other things over the summer. Anyway, sponsorships will be happening here um, this morning. So as you're heading out, um, if you have the opportunity, stop by, um, chat with the people at the Joe's Place booth and uh, see if that's a good fit for you. Okay, we're gonna worship together.